Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I mean, you'd be amazed at how many people I ran into during my career that thought we'd make a lot of money. <laughs> Meanwhile, person serving hot dogs in the stadium makes more than the guy playing. Welcome to The Real Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Last week, Major League Baseball shut its doors, locking out players and commencing the league's first work stoppage since the 1994-95 season. Both the owners and the players have dug in with their lists of demands that they're hoping to negotiate. But while these billionaires and millionaires duke it out and cry foul, they're all sharing pretty equally in a massive pie. But there is a forgotten population within the game that's getting just the scraps and won't be given a seat at the negotiating table. That group is the future of baseball, minor league ballplayers. Over the years, Real Sports has aired a number of reports focusing on the plight of minor leaguers. And as you'll hear on this installment of the podcast, those thousands of ballplayers around the country scratching and clawing for their shot in the big leagues are hardly living like pro athletes. In fact, most endure sub-minimum wage salary and woeful living conditions. It's a reality that's led some former minor leaguers to spearhead a fight for more equity. On today's podcast, you'll hear John Frankel's reporting from 2018. Then we'll be joined by Harry Marino, former ball player turned lawyer and now executive director of the organization Advocates for Minor Leaguers. Marino will talk to us about the core issues still facing minor league players and how his group is trying not to be left behind as Major League Baseball and its union go to war. All that to come, but first here's John Frankel's real sports story from 2018. Baseball made history last season. In 2017, Major League Baseball enjoyed revenues of over $10 billion for the very first time. The business of baseball is booming. Since 1984, adjusting for inflation, Major League players have seen their salaries multiply five times, and owners have seen their investment grow 20-fold. But there's one group that hasn't shared in the spoils. Minor leaguers, already baseball's poorest, have somehow seen their yearly pay go down. Revenue is growing exponentially. And yet none of that is trickling down to the minor league players. These players are the future of the game, but yet they're treated like cattle. For four years, attorney Garrett Brushhouse has been squaring off in court against one of the country's most profitable and powerful sports enterprises, suing Major League Baseball over how much the league pays its minor league players. The majority of minor league baseball players are earning less than $7,500 per year a number that places them well below the poverty line. How does that sit with you? It's tough to swallow. We first met Brushhouse in 2014, when he had just filed his lawsuit. But long before he sued Major League Baseball, 
Brushhouse dreamed of being in it. In college, he was a star pitcher at the University of Missouri. Garrett Brushhouse has uh, really had an outstanding season. And in 2004, he was drafted by the San Francisco Giants. You're almost blind with euphoria, blind with hope and blind with euphoria. Could they have paid you nothing and you'd have signed? Yeah, they're, they're handing me this contract to play professional baseball. I, I'm, I'm not going to say no to them. But Brushhouse soon got a look at how much money he was helping to generate. Minor league teams were seeing revenue skyrocket, thanks to a rash of new stadiums and the demand for affordable family entertainment. 1,000 consecutive sold-out games. Some teams were now worth tens of millions of dollars. Meantime, Brushhouse says, players themselves were being paid peanuts. You get to the park really early. You don't leave until 11 o'clock. You do that seven days a week. You're making three, four bucks an hour a lot of times. You're telling me that a guy who's playing professional baseball could make more if he were flipping burgers? Could certainly make more if he was flipping burgers. And Brushhouse says that the money he made for playing games was a relative windfall next to what he was paid the rest of the year. How much does a minor leaguer make for spring training? Minor leaguers are not paid their salary at all during spring training. How much does a minor leaguer make during the offseason? They aren't paid a dime during offseason. Was there talk about it in the clubhouse? Oh, people are, are afraid of retaliation. They'll just get rid of them and bring in other minor league players if, if you complain too much. In fact, no active minor leaguers would speak to Real Sports on camera for this story. To hear the cost of playing in the minors, you need to talk to a player who's given up the dream and is now facing reality. Living at your parents' house. Absolutely. How does that roll off the tongue? <laughs> it feels terrible. It's embarrassing. You're 31 years old and you live at your parents' house? How do you pick up a chick like that? I can't do it. <laughs> so this is the room you grew up in? Or? This is it. This is it right here. Where the magic Just a few years ago, Tim Pahuda was a top minor leaguer in the Washington Nationals organization. But his call to the big leagues never came. And soon, his career was over. Are the memories worth something? Try paying the rent with a memory. I retired with $300 in my bank account. $300? <laughs> I mean, you'd be amazed at how many people I ran into during my career that thought we'd make a lot of money. <laughs> Meanwhile, person serving hot dogs in the stadium makes more than the guy playing first base. Back it goes! Gone, Tim Pahuda! As minor leaguers go, Pahuda was a star belting 112 home runs in his career. All the while, he says, he lived like a pauper. I remember one apartment we had in Savannah, Georgia, where we crammed like five of us into this two-bedroom apartment. Did you have furniture? Air mattresses. We had air mattresses, and I think one guy had like a 30-inch TV. When you took stock of your situation, and you looked around and said, wait a minute, I'm living with four other guys in a two-bedroom apartment on an air mattress. <laughs> Aren't I a professional athlete? Yeah, right. That's exactly what you say to yourself. You don't feel like a professional athlete at that point. You feel like an unwanted commodity. Garrett Brushhouse told us he didn't live much better. The home he shared with teammates had a hole in the ceiling, a plywood plank for a kitchen table, and only an air mattress to sleep on. It was conditions like these that got him thinking about changing careers and taking action. I realized that more had to be done. So I started studying for the LSAT tests on the bus rides uh, during, during my last year of playing, getting ready for law school. And when Brushhouse became a lawyer, he knew exactly what he wanted his first case to be. He sued Major League Baseball 
claiming that one of the highest profile industries in America was actually breaking the law, paying its minor leaguers less than the federal minimum wage. Major league teams should just be paying these guys minimum wage, and if they work more than 40 hours a week, they should be paying them overtime. But guys know what they're signing. They see the contract, they see what the pay is. They do it, nobody puts a gun to their head. Now, nobody's talking about them getting rich here, but is minimum wage too much to ask for? Brushhouse's suit started with just a few dozen plaintiffs, including Tim Pahuda. But soon he was representing more than 2,000 minor leaguers. If successful, the lawsuit stood to overhaul the minor league pay system for good. That's when Major League Baseball decided to open its purse strings and give out large sums of money. Not to minor league ballplayers, but to lobbyists and lawmakers in Washington, D.C. And this is a league that, that suddenly sees a lot at stake in Washington and wants to make sure that their positions are being heard at the highest levels. Mike DeBonis is a reporter who covers Congress for the Washington Post. He watched as Major League Baseball, which had spent relatively little money lobbying legislators in the past, abruptly tripled the amount it was spending to buy access in Washington. When an industry like Major League Baseball increases its lobbying spending from 330000 to more than a million dollars, how do you read that? You don't see a jump like that unless there are very specific issues uh, at stake that, that are important to the bottom line. These disclosure reports filed by Major League Baseball reveal that the league was lobbying Congress on one particular issue. The Fair Labor Standards Act, which governs the minimum wage, again and again and again. Mike DeBonis says baseball's goal was simple, to get Congress to declare it legal to pay minor leaguers as they always had, thus stopping the players' lawsuit in its tracks. They were facing high-stakes litigation that could cost them millions of dollars a year. An investment in terms of lobbying could essentially settle that issue at a fraction of the cost of having to pay out to minor league ballplayers. Baseball's lobbyists told Congress that the stakes of the lawsuit were high, that nothing less than the fate of the game stood in the balance. They got a bill placed before Congress with a less than subtle name, the Save America's Pastime Act. To think that this industry with exponential revenue growth uh, with major league salaries averaging in the millions of dollars, can't afford to pay minor league players the minimum wage. I mean, we're talking about the same laws that Walmart and McDonald's comply with. You're saying that the New York Yankees can't comply with those laws? Come on. This seems like smart business for Major League Baseball. Spend a few million dollars on some lobbying, and over the long term, it's going to save them hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, it's not all about profit margins. Instead of going to Congress and essentially knifing your workers in the back, why not treat them fairly? But the Lords of Baseball didn't just open their checkbooks for powerful D.C. lobbyists. Many major league owners began sending large campaign donations to Washington's most powerful lawmakers. One after another suddenly increased their giving to so-called congressional super PACs which helped members of Congress get reelected. When Major League Baseball hired these lobbying firms, it coincides with increased political contributions from more than a handful of owners in baseball. Just an accident? Any one donor, you know, you could point to and say there are different reasons for their decisions. 
But together, having all these different major league owners contributing in the same way, it just adds to that picture that it was worth their money to invest in access to their public officials all at the same time. In March, those same public officials were scrambling to pass a massive 2,200-page federal spending bill. With only hours until a vote, even lawmakers knew they could never read all the big-ticket items. Nobody knows what's in this legislation. Let alone the Save America's Pastime Act, a last-minute addition slipped into the bill on page 1,967. This came out late at night, just literally hours before it got a fr its first vote. This part of the spending bill that dealt with the federal minimum wage was not on the front page. Completely unvetted. As far as the rank and file member of the House or Senate, someone who's not in leadership, they would have had next to zero idea what this was all about. Breaking news, the U.S. Senate passes a massive spending bill overnight. The one it was now the law of the land. Minor leaguers were entitled to pay only for 40 hours of work a week and only during the season. They'd continue to get nothing for overtime hours or spring training or off-season work. Do you think the lawmakers understood what they were signing on to? No. You know, normally with legislation, you have a hearing. People can come in and explain the ramifications of a proposed bill. But when you just sneak something in in a rushed manner, none of the lawmakers even knew what they were voting on. We wanted to ask Major League Baseball about the Save America's Pastime Act and the league's efforts in Washington, D.C. But the league declined to speak with us. In spite of the new bill, Brushhouse is moving ahead with his lawsuit, hoping individual states will ignore the federal exemption in favor of state laws, which allow for higher wages. But after this recent defeat, Brushhouse fears for the next generation of aspiring ballplayers. It's very unfortunate that our Congress has now taken the side of the owners and has said, yeah, it's fine to exploit players like this. They are taking advantage of young players with dreams. And we're now joined by the executive director of Advocates for Minor Leaguers, Harry Marino. Harry, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. So, Harry, before we dive in, I want to talk a bit about your story. We heard about Garrett Brushhouse and his road from minor league baseball to a career in law. You forged a similar path. So tell me about your baseball life and how you came to do this sort of work. Yeah, so I was a minor leaguer with the Diamondbacks and the Orioles back in 2012 through 2014. I came out of Division Three Williams College as an undrafted free agent. And in my time in the minor leagues, I was really taken by the way that players were treated almost immediately. You know, five guys in a one-bedroom apartment, guys making, you know, I think my first year, I made $3,300. So those experiences were very eye-opening, let's put it that way. But to be honest with you, the way that I saw minor league players being treated was a part of why I wanted to go to law school. I really felt that the players that I was playing with, especially some of the Dominican players who I was in the bullpen with and would drive to the field every day and hear their story, needed advocates plain and simple, people just to step up for them. I just realized they didn't have that. And so it was part of what I wrote about in my law school admissions essay was that, you know, with a law degree, you can do all kinds of things, not only, but including advocate for the guys that I was just playing with. 
And so fast forward five years or so, and I finish law school and I go to work in, in Washington, D.C. at court for some judges and work for a law firm. And when I saw that Garrett and others had formed advocates for minor leaguers, it was kind of a, a no-brainer moment for me to reach out because I quite literally had, had kind of gone to law school to do work like this. So that's kind of what has led me to my current position. So that story we just heard showed Major League Baseball pretty defiant in pushing back against Garrett, against the reform he and others were seeking. But earlier this year, there was a notable concession, an agreement for Major League Baseball to provide lodging for players throughout the minors. How and why did they come to foot that bill? So the reason is really quite simple. Players came together around the issue of housing and spoke out about the issue in a sustained and coordinated way for this past year. And fans showed that they cared about it. And that put pressure on the league. I mean, if we look back at the beginning of the season, our organization, Advocates for Minor Leaguers, was really just getting going. We were founded at the beginning of 2020. There was no minor league season in 2020 because of COVID. So this past season was the first season of our real operations. And so at the beginning of the year, we, we started by reaching out to players and saying, you know, look, we know there are a lot of issues in the minor leagues. Let's try to tackle something concrete and get a win on something. What would you prioritize? And players said, housing, it's a disaster. And I know that that's the case. It's been the case for a while. But, you know, when players, especially at the beginning of the season, were so focused on it, we said, let's rather, we, we could complain about a lot of different things. There's a lot of different issues here. Why don't we put our effort into this issue. And so, you know, it's really a, a testament to the dozens of players who came to us with their stories so that we could put it out on our Twitter account, who worked with reporters like June Lee at ESPN and Rick Garoli at The Athletic, who were willing to shine a light on the minor league housing crisis. And over the course of the summer, what we saw was just growing awareness, plain and simple, on the part of fans of how minor leaguers were really housed. And that culminated I would say, you know, pretty clearly on uh, September 18th, when our organization hosted a fan appreciation day at about 10 stadiums across the country, where we handed out fair ball wristbands, you know, these teal wristbands that said that minor league players were demanding fair treatment and literature about the way minor leaguers were treated. On that day, we had an unprecedented show of solidarity by players themselves, uh, when players in the Mets and Phillies system in Brooklyn, took the field wearing the wristbands. And this was truly you know, an unprecedented demonstration. Literally three days later, the Major League Baseball owners voted unanimously to change the housing policy. So you know, I think if when you look back at the course of the season, what we see is what happens so often in any labor situation, which is when workers unite around an issue and stand strong and show that they mean business and that they're willing to put up a stand around an issue that they can make real progress. And that's what happened this year. So now that housing has been taken care of, what are the other core issues remaining that you feel need to be addressed? We're currently in a situation where minor league players have not been paid since September and won't be paid again until April. And all of that time, they'll be performing services under their contract. They're literally contractually obligated to train. It's not, I mean, everyone knows that you'd have to train in the off season to be able to play, you know, professional baseball next year, but that's actually required by contract and players don't receive any salary at all during that off season time or during spring training. It's obvious that playing professional baseball is a year round job. So I think that's, that's going to be one 
one major issue. There are also issues around food, around transportation, around name, image, and likeness. I mean, now minor league players can't profit off that. They, they sign those rights away to the teams. Now college athletes can, right? So we're seeing a lot of different issues. And, and to be honest with you, we're just scratching the surface at this point in terms of what we're trying to do, which is fundamentally change what it means to be a minor league baseball player. Well, let's get to the big news, Harry, of the Major League Baseball lockout. So a quick point of clarification for our audience here. The MLBPA that's fighting the owners, they do not represent the thousands of minor leaguers. So how will this labor war impact your coalition of players? And will minor leaguers have any seat at the table as a new CBA gets negotiated? So it's a really important Point, and I think it's one that understandably is lost on a lot of you know casual fans of the game. The Major League Baseball Players Association represents guys on the 40-man roster. So what that is, is it's all the Major League players, and then it's about 12 other players, 14 other players who are in the minor leagues, right, or are not, otherwise not on the active roster. Besides that, the Major League Union doesn't represent any minor leaguers. They don't. And so just as a matter of law, they are not permitted to bargain over minor league issues in their collective bargaining agreement. And I can say that from the perspective of minor league players and, you know, our player steering committee put out a statement last week to this effect, we're distinct from major league players and we're distinct from the major league union. So we're not looking for a handout as a third party in this collective bargaining agreement. What we're looking for is to have our own seat at the table, right? And to have an actual agreement at some point where minor league players are actually a party and can sit down and can talk about the issues that are impacting them with the league. You know, when that happens, then we're going to see real fundamental sustained change at the minor league level, but it's just not going to happen in this collective bargaining agreement. Well, when your organization as you noted launched that players steering committee, I saw that the first course of action was to throw steadfast support behind the MLBPA, but that raises a question, Harry, why treat the PA as this reliable ally when as you noted, they're not your union? And historically, they haven't fought alongside you. So what I would say is we're in the middle of a transitional period here at the minor league level about what it means to be a minor leaguer. I expect that things will change in the years to come. And so I think it's it's about being patient and realizing that change this fundamental doesn't happen overnight. You know, at the end of the day, we are fundamentally supportive of the major league players and everything that they stand for because they're the talent on the field and they're fighting for what they deserve. And the numbers are higher, but the fight is the same. And that's ultimately how we see it. And you know, we ultimately want to fight for our own rights. And that's what we've done this past year with housing. It's what we'll continue to do. And we expect that just as we have been, that we'll be allies with the MLBPA and with major league players as that happens. Well, you say you have advocates and allies in the major league ranks, but And tell me if I'm wrong, the PA is coming to this negotiation with a long list of demands for greater equity for their constituents, their guys, but pulling out a chair for the minor leaguers to sit alongside them doesn't appear on that list. So again, what responsibility do the major league players and their union bear for the reality facing their minor league brothers today? There's no mechanism for major league players or the major league union to really impact this at this point. And so we're just being realistic about sort of the legal situation, the timing here. I can tell you that we have support from the major league union. We've seen that, 
We have support for major league players. Again, it's just a matter of these things are on dual tracks and they're happening at different times. And that's frustrating to me as it's frustrating to, you know, a lot of fans that we can't move more quickly to make, make this happen. But it's just the reality of the situation. So that bears the question, how how does that come to pass? Is is unionizing minor leaguers a practical reality in the short term? What are the mechanisms that allow minor leaguers parallel to the MLBPA to better advocate for its needs? So I'm optimistic, yeah, that at some point minor league players will be able to come together and form their own union. We're not at that point right now. We're not in a, you know, a union organizing drive. We're not actively attempting to unionize minor leaguers right now. What we're doing is just creating those conditions by raising awareness, educating the public, changing the way that players view the situation, empowering players by showing them that coming together around certain issues can yield really consequential victories like what we saw with housing. And I think as we continue down that line, we will see minor league players one day, I believe, again, this is just my personal view and and perhaps aspiration, come together and actually form a minor league players union. You noted earlier the kind of unprecedented symbolic gesture of guys wearing wristbands. But when, when we reported our stories, we saw how reticent active minor leaguers were to really say anything on this issue. There was a, a very real fear to upset the apple cart in any way as these guys were understandably focused on their professional prospects and staying in the good graces of their employer. How much of a challenge is that still? to mobilize this kind of advocacy on the part of players whose first priority is just moving from single A to double A to triple A and and onward. Yeah, look, it's something that has been inspiring to see this year is how much that is starting to change. Because I can tell you that back, you know, when I played eight, 10 years ago, it was different. Guys were very scared. And there is a certain level of fear, certainly of of speaking out publicly and, and what that might mean for one's career. But I think what we have now that we didn't have a year ago is a track record of players who have done it, right? So guys like Kieran Lovegrove, who went on the record with ESPN and others who followed in his path and and the many players who, even if they didn't put their name behind it, took a risk by coming to us with their story and trusting us to put it out, you know, in a certain way. I think those players are now populating clubhouses all across the country and saying to each other, look, there's nothing really to be afraid of here, right? We're not doing anything wrong. We're just speaking honestly about the really inhumane and substandard treatment that we're receiving. And I think there's a growing number of guys who say, if that's something that's going to lead to retribution, then that's something that I have to deal with because it shouldn't be the case. It shouldn't be the case that just being honest, again, we're not talking about coming out and doing anything crazy. We're just talking about being honest about the way that that guys are being treated. And I think there's a changing culture in the minor leagues where there's always going to be that fear. There's always going to be that desire to make the major leagues that's going to make it more difficult for guys to speak up in this workplace than in some others. But if the culture changes and guys see what we're doing is really not that controversial or objectionable, it's really just speaking the truth. And look, and now we also have a track record of guys who haven't been cut or haven't faced any retribution because they can't. I mean, it goes without saying, but like as a legal matter, players cannot be retaliated against for engaging in concerted activity under the National Labor Relations Act. And that's whether you have a union or not. So guys have legal protection. We now have a track record of guys being taking a more active role and, and largely not facing any retribution for that. So I think the culture started to change and that's really heartening to see. Well, we'll certainly continue to watch it all play out. And we thank you for coming on today to chat with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
And that'll do it for today's Real Sports podcast. We'll be back with a new episode following the premiere of the next Real Sports, our special year-end roundtable edition, on December 21st. And a quick reminder to everyone listening, you can watch all recent episodes of Real Sports with Brian Gumbel on HBO Max. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next time.